Thanks uh, very much, Father Bryce, and thank you all for coming and for your for patience. Um, it's a bit uh, difficult getting out of the swamp in, uh, in Washington earlier today, but finally made it and delighted to be back here uh, with the raging Cajun uh, Catholics. I have one of your uh, fridge magnets on my refrigerator at our summer place in, in Quebec. So we've, we've connected uh, Acadian uh, Louisiana to Acadian Canada through my refrigerator. Um, tonight, I would like to propose to you um, a new way of thinking about the last 200 years of, of Catholic history. This is, in fact, a preview of my next book, which will be out next fall. It's called The Irony of Modern Catholic History, A Drama in Five Acts. And what I'd like to describe to you tonight is, is the five acts of the drama <clears throat> and where that, where that leaves us uh, here in 2018. Among both professional historians and, and in the media, even, even today, the story of these past two centuries is usually framed as a constant battle between the Catholic Church and modernity, the modern world, in which the modern world is, is always the actor and the church is always reacting, often, often negatively. Uh, tonight I want to suggest something quite different, that there is in fact a, a twofold irony in, in the interaction of, of Catholicism and modernity. The first irony is that this interaction, which, which really began in Europe with the modern world trying to drive the Catholic Church to the very margins of society, has ended up with the Catholic Church rediscovering its own essence. As a, as a communion of, of missionary disciples. And the second irony is that in the course of that rediscovery of the essentially missionary or evangelical character of the church, the Catholic Church has developed a social doctrine that just might save the now postmodern world from its own incoherence. So, so two ironies, the confrontation between the Catholic Church and modernity leads the church to rediscover the most essential truth about itself, conveyed in the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, go and make disciples of all nations. And at the same time, in the course of doing that, the church develops a way of thinking about modern social and political life that just might be able to save the modern world from self-destructing. Let's get a couple of definitional questions done right at the very beginning. 
In what follows tonight, when I say Catholic Church, I mean the teaching authority of Catholicism embodied in the Bishop of Rome as the universal pastor of the church. And at one significant moment, the bishops of the church uh, gathered in ecumenical council. Now that, of course, by no means exhausts what Catholic Church means, and, but given the unique authority structure of Catholicism, a focus on the papacy and its teaching about the modern world and all of its various dimensions provides a, a clarifying angle of vision for considering this complex set of relationships and interactions. What about modernity? What do I mean by modernity, the modern world? Well, I mean societies characterized by the decline of aristocratic power based on inherited authority and wealth. I mean the, the desacralization of, of political authority by the sharp differentiation of religious and political authority and the dominance of political authority in public life. I mean mass urbanization and education, social mobility, popular participation in government, the bureaucratization of virtually every aspect of life, great improvements in nutrition and medicine, uh, and a vast expansion of leisure time available to everybody. That's, that's really what we mean by the modern world as distinguished from the world before the mid to late 18th century. So that's the definitional uh, issues dealt with. Um, let's now run back in our minds the historical videotape <clears throat> to Christmas Eve 1999. John Paul II often said that the great jubilee of 2000 was, was the interpretive key to his entire pontificate. That he also saw it as a historic, even epical turning point for the Catholic Church was suggested by the fact that the, the jubilee year actually lasted two weeks longer than a calendar year. Great Jubilee opened at that Christmas Midnight Mass on December 24th, 25th, 1999, when the Pope knelt at and then walked through the open holy door of St. Peter's Basilica, which symbolically represented the breadth of God's mercy. The Jubilee continued throughout all of 2000 and was extended into the first week of 2001. Then on January 6, 2001, the Solemnity of the Epiphany, the two bronze panels of the Holy Door of St. Peter's were solemnly closed. And to mark the conclusion of the Great Jubilee of 2000, John Paul II issued the apostolic letter uh, with the Latin title, Novo Millennio Ineunte, entering the new millennium. And throughout that letter, which defined the Catholic Church's grand strategy for the 21st century and the third millennium of Christian history, the Pope repeated a, a biblical antiphon drawn from the fifth chapter of, of St. Luke's Gospel. 
I'm, I'm sure you all remember the scene. Several Galilean fishermen have spent a long night on the lake of Gennesaret, fruitlessly plying their trade. Jesus walks onto the scene, borrows Simon's boat as a kind of podium from which to address the crowd on the seashore. And after he's taught the people about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, he tells Simon to put out into the deep for a catch. Simon grumbles that they haven't caught anything all night, but since Jesus says to set out into the deep, he'll do just that. The haul of fish is so immense that another boat has to help them bring it to shore, after which Simon, who will later be known as Peter, leaves everything to follow Jesus, along with his brother Andrew and their partners in the other boat, James and John. Now, the Latin phrase for put out into the deep, duc in altum, reverberated throughout John Paul's apostolic letter, Novo Millennio Uniunte, repeated five times in the letter, that phrase, duc in altum, put out into the deep, captured in a single sentence. John Paul II's understanding of the drama of Catholicism and modernity in the new century. The church must leave the shallow waters, the comfortable waters of institutional maintenance and set out into the roiling, turbulent deep of the late modern and increasingly postmodern world. To do what? to make a great catch, to convert the 20th century world to Christ while concurrently proposing ways and means to strengthen the moral and cultural foundations of modernity's noblest aspirations and achievements. This tremendous change in what political theorists would call grand strategy. This change from ecclesiastical institutional maintenance to robust evangelism and critical civic engagement has been made possible in this century by the first four previous acts in the drama of Catholicism and modernity. So let me briefly describe the first four acts so that this fifth act in which we're living comes into sharper focus. The first act in the drama of Catholicism and modernity which ran from the French Revolution through the pontificate of Pope Pius IX who died in 1878 was the high point of the Counter-Reformation. As it was first energized by the reforming Council of Trent in the 16th century, Counter-Reformation Catholicism was not simply defensive, common misperceptions today notwithstanding. In its first decades, the Counter-Reformation Church was full of missionary zeal as names like Francis Xavier, the Apostle of the Indies, Francois de Laval, 
the founding bishop of Montreal in New France, and Bartolome de las Casas, the Dominican defender of the human rights of the native peoples of the Western Hemisphere, suggest. However, because the church was confronted by aggressive ideological and political challengers in the 18th and 19th centuries, the Catholic Church became in the main a defensive church focused on the imperative of institutional survival or institutional maintenance. And that was not unreasonable uh, given the assault by various anti-clerical regimes uh, on Catholic educational and charitable institutions. As it first encountered political modernity in the 19th century, the Catholic Church was also burdened by the fact that the Pope was the ruler of the middle third of Italy, called the Papal States which seemed to link the papacy directly to autocracy as a method of governance, just as the modern world was discovering democracy, popular participation in government, etc. The loss of the papal states in 1870 seemed a devastating blow to Pope Pius IX in yet another irony in this history of, of ironies, I think the demise of the Papal States in 1870 cleared the stage of an obstacle impeding the development of a serious Catholic engagement with political modernity. In the second act of the drama, which opened with the election of Pope Leo XIII in 1878 and continued through the pontificate of Pope Pius XII, who died in 1958, the Catholic Church began to probe the possibility of a conversation with cultural, social, economic, and political modernity conducted on the basis of philosophical first principles that could be known by reason. Leo XIII created what I have come to call the Leonine Revolution, beginning with the encyclical Eterni Patris in 1879 and further developed by his great encyclicals on social doctrine and public life. That Leonine Revolution, that probing of a conversation with the modern world in its various forms, continued in the church in fits and starts for the next 80 years. And the controversies over the boundaries of that conversation, even over its advisability, should the church be in conversation with modernity, were continual and sometimes quite sharp-edged. Then in the fourth decade of this second act of our drama, a dominantly European Catholic Church, over 65% of the world's Catholics lived, lived in Europe uh, in 1914, a dominantly European Catholic Church, <coughs> excuse me, found its people embroiled in the First World War. 
an exercise in mass slaughter in which the products of modern science and technology uh, gave lethal expression to some of the worst ideas of intellectual and cultural modernity, including social Darwinism, theories of inevitable racial and ethnic conflict, and xenophobic nationalism. In the aftermath of that disaster, which took more than 40 million lives, both in terms of the war itself and the great flu plague that, that followed it, Catholicism was next confronted by the totalitarian project in its communist, fascist, and German national socialist forms, each of which posed a sharp challenge to the very existence of the church. But throughout its struggles with these extreme and often violent manifestations of political modernity, the dynamism of that revolution launched by Leo XIII was sustained within the church so that a path beyond the defensiveness of the later Counter-Reformation period and its institutional maintenance Catholicism began to open up. <clears throat> With the election of Pope John the 23rd in 1958 and his summoning of the Second Vatican Council, <clears throat> excuse me, the curtain was raised on the third act of the drama of Catholicism and modernity. The Vatican Commission charged with preparing the Council's agenda solicited proposals for discussion topics from all of the bishops of the world and the answers they received suggested that many of the bishops who came to Rome in October 1962 expected that Vatican II's work would involve fine-tuning counter-reformation Catholicism. But other bishops and their theological advisors, more alert to the dynamics created in the church by the Leonine Revolution, had other ideas. And as he made clear in his opening address to the council, known by its first three Latin words, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, Mother Church Rejoices, John XXIII had some different ideas too. As Leo XIII's encyclical on St. Thomas Aquinas, Eterni Patris, had opened the possibility of a Catholic engagement with intellectual and cultural modernity, and as Leo's social and political encyclicals had created conditions for a Catholic engagement with political modernity, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia signaled that another pope elected as an elderly placeholder, as Leo XIII had been in 1878, and John XXIII had been in 1958, had taken another bold, grand historical, grand strategic decision. Today, insofar as anyone remembers Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, it's remembered for that famous line in which the Pope criticized what he called the prophets of gloom who saw nothing in the modern world but darkness. Yet there was far, far more to John XXIII's opening address to Vatican II 
than one sentence about people who only saw the glass half empty. Rather, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, read in full, was a robust summary, uh, robust summons to mission, in which John XXIII insisted that the Catholic Church must reclaim its evangelical patrimony, must hear again the great commission of Matthew 28, how through the conciliar experience of a new Pentecost that would renew the church in order to engage the modern world fully. The terms of that engagement were sharply debated throughout the four sessions of Vatican II, but by the time the council was solemnly closed by Pope Paul VI on December 8, 1965, the curtain had come down on counter-reformation Catholicism. Yet the character of the Catholicism of the future remained deeply contested. A small minority in the church determined to resist modernity in all its expressions clung to what it understood as settled, unchangeable forms of Catholic thought and ecclesiastical life, although many of those conceptions and practices were in fact time-bound and historically contingent. A not inconsiderable part of the world church engaged in a decades-long experiment in the enthusiastic, often uncritical embrace of modernity, but in doing so seemed to forget the evangelical summons of John XXIII in Gaudet Mater Ecclesia. Some even suggested that Christian mission was no longer important since the world was already implicitly Christian and conversion to Jesus Christ was simply one among many ways of making explicit what was already implicit in a maturing humanity. Then in the latter years of the pontificate of Paul VI, a two-track counter-proposal came into play. According to that counter-proposal, the church should critically engage cultural, economic, social, and political modernity as a full participant in the public debate about the great questions of meaning and value that, should decide, that would decide the human future. And it should do so in two ways through evangelism, which responded to modernity's quest for meaning, and on the basis of its social doctrine, which might provide a more secure foundation for modernity's noble aspirations to liberty, equality, prosperity, and solidarity. The reformist critique of social, political, cultural, and economic modernity from within from inside the modern project was the fourth act in the drama of Catholicism and modernity, and it came to its first mature expression in the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict XVI, both in their teaching and in the living parts of the world church that they inspired. At the same time, however, 
the pontificates of John Paul and Benedict embodied the other dimension of the post-conciliar reformist counterproposal, the recovery of the evangelical missionary imperative found in John XXIII's opening address to Vatican II. So this fifth act of the drama, the act in which all of us are now living, would incorporate the fourth act of the drama, the Catholic critique of modernity from within, while concurrently living a robust evangelical commitment to convert the late modern and postmodern worlds to friendship with Jesus Christ. In that encounter with the incarnate Son of God, John Paul and Benedict believed, modernity would find the most satisfactory answers to its 21st century dilemmas, which included a loss of, of grip on the meaning and value of life based on a, an enervating skepticism about the possibility of any human grasp on the truth, including moral truth. Now, as John Paul II underscored in that apostolic letter, Novo Millennio in Aunte, I mentioned a moment ago, living a thoroughly evangelical Catholicism in the 21st century would require Catholics, especially in our part of the world, to think of themselves and their religious obligations in a quite different way. In the last years, the last decades of, of counter-reformation Catholicism, that way of being Catholic that everybody over 55 in this room grew up in, Catholics typically thought of missionaries as brave men and women who left their Christian homelands for exotic and sometimes dangerous places generally depicted in National Geographic with pictures that the sisters sometimes cut out so that the seventh and eighth grade boys wouldn't get too excited here. Missionaries were people who would go out to those exotic places spending out their lives to offer those who had never heard of Christ the possibility of friendship with him and incorporation into his mystical body, the church. That type of missionary activity, John Paul understood, remained an urgent part of the church's 21st century task. But given the realities of late modernity and post-modernity and the rise of, of what were being called post-Christian societies throughout the North Atlantic world, new concepts of who was a missionary and what constituted mission territory were urgently needed. As John Paul said in his homily on January 6, 2001, at the mass that concluded the Great Jubilee of 2000, the Catholic Church must, quote, start out afresh on a new stage of the journey on which we all become proclaimers and heralds. That was how Catholicism would, as he put it, become in history a true epiphany of the merciful and glorious face of Christ the Lord. To be that and to do that, the Pope wrote in Novo Millennio in Aunte, the entire church, the whole church, 
not just a subset of Catholics called missionaries, had to put out into the deep in order, as he put it, to take up the evangelizing mission with fresh enthusiasm. That, he believed, was the summons issued by the Second Vatican Council, and it was to recall that summons and make it the church's grand strategy for the third millennium that he had initiated the great jubilee of 2000. Vatican II spoke eloquently about Catholicism as a pilgrim church. That pilgrimage, John Paul wrote, was one in which there is no time for looking back. Rather, the church should always look forward, always ready to answer the question. The Apostle Peter's stunned listeners had asked him on the first Christian Pentecost, what must we do? And the answer to that query must first be given by Christians themselves. Christians must meet Christ, embrace the friendship he offers, and then offer that same encounter and friendship to others. In other words, every Catholic was called to be a missionary disciple in the third millennium. Every Catholic received a missionary vocation on the day of his or her baptism. Mission, the Pope insisted, cannot be left to a group of specialists, but must involve the responsibility of all the members of the people of God. As Pope Paul VI had taught in his 1975 apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Nunciandi, announcing the gospel, that responsibility was first met and the church's proclamation of the, of the gospel was first given concrete expression by the quality of the church's own life. By living its life as a communion of love, the church of the 21st century embodied the definition of its essence offered by Vatican II in its dogmatic constitution of the church. As a communion of love, the council fathers wrote, the church would appear as a sacrament, as the sign and instrument of intimate union with God and of the unity of the human race. At the same time, however, and even as it engaged in dialogue with other world religions and with 21st century skeptics, agnostics, and atheists, the Catholicism of the third century must always John Paul insisted by its action and proposal, live out its constituting conviction that in meeting Jesus Christ crucified and risen, the men and women of the late modern and postmodern worlds would be empowered to live the life of the Trinity here and now and with Christ would be enabled to transform history until its fulfillment in the heavenly Jerusalem. This evangelical commitment to conversion and transformation, John Paul concluded, had always been at the heart of the church and it is our program for the third millennium. This dramatic transition in Catholic self-understanding 
in which the Counter-Reformation concept of the church as a juridical body, as a legal body, what the canonists used to call a societas perfecta, the perfect society, is succeeded by the concept of the church as a communion of disciples in mission, that transition was surely influenced by the church's encounter with modernity, not excluding the fact that the first century of that encounter uh, was one of the church and the modern world hurling anathemas at each other with great gusto. And there was certainly an ironic quality in that, in that line of influence. In a historical drama that began with much of, of modernity, considering Catholicism an alien pathogen to be destroyed for the help health of the body politic, and the Catholic Church contesting modernity on all fronts, the church came to reclaim the foundational truth about its own evangelical and missionary essence. Yet the vision of an evangelizing and publicly engaged Catholicism uh, expressed in John Paul II's uh, encyclical Redemptoris Missio, the mission of the Redeemer, and in the great John Paul social encyclical Centesimus Annus, did not evolve simply in reaction to the challenge of modernity. Rather, the publicly engaged and evangelically assertive Catholicism of this fifth act of the drama, our act, our time, was gestated within a church that had become a protagonist, an actor, in the drama of modernity in its own right. Redem Torres Misio and John Paul II's call to a new evangelization stands in a line of development. We stand in a line of development that can be traced back to theologians of the 19th century whose biblical and patristic studies were crucial in encouraging a Catholic self-understanding in which the juridical or structural dimensions of the church were understood to be at the service of the church's liturgical and spiritual life and its evangelical mission. Those insights from what was known as charismatic theology then played an important role in the theological renaissance of the 20th century, which was the precondition to the Second Vatican Council and the idea of the church as the sacrament of communion with God and of the unity of the human race proposed by Vatican II in its dogmatic constitution on the church. Centesimus Annus, for its part, John Paul II's great social encyclical, brought to a fine point of analysis and prescription the approach to social, economic, and political modernity that had been pioneered in the 19th century by Leo XIII. And while it's true that Leo was responding to challenges posed by the modern world, his response was shaped by Catholic understandings of, of what's a human person, 
what it means to be a human society, and what the members of society owe each other that had been worked out conceptually by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, drawing on themes ultimately rooted in the Bible. The emergence of evangelical, publicly engaged Catholicism in this fifth act of the drama of Catholicism and modernity thus challenges the conventional view, which dominates much of historical scholarship and which is the subtext of so much media coverage of the church, the conventional view that in the drama of Catholicism and modernity, modernity is the sole protagonist against which Catholicism is always reacting. That's just not true. The relationship between Catholicism and modernity was and is far more complex than that. It's also far more interesting. As the Catholicism of Centesimus Annus and Redemptoris Missio positioned the church to offer late modernity and post-modernity a path beyond its 21st century dilemmas and discontents. What was decried in the 18th century by Voltaire as the loathsome horror that had to be crushed in the name of freedom, Voltaire's Écrasé l'enfant, now had a proposal to make that the late modern world badly needed to hear if our time was not to implode because of false ideas of freedom based on false understandings of the human person. So, there are many ironies in the fire. There are many ironies in the fire of the Catholic encounter with modernity. And just as the living parts of the Catholic Church, which I will say are embodied in this, in this great parish and student center, just as the living parts of the church were beginning to live out the new evangelization while offering important proposals for the renewal of public life, the most bitter of those ironies came into the white-hot glare of public attention. The revelations throughout the first two decades of the 21st century that Catholic clergy of all ranks had sexually abused the young and that the church's leaders at both the local and international levels had too frequently failed to address these grave sins and crimes by brother priests and brother bishops. Now, we know or we should know that the sexual abuse of the young is a worldwide plague in the late modern world, and empirical studies do not suggest that abuse was any more prevalent in the Catholic Church than in any other institution. Some studies suggested that in the United States, sexual abuse of young people was far more prevalent in public schools than in the Catholic Church, and there seems little doubt that most of this 
abuse takes place horrifically within families. Yet the sexual abuse crisis within the church, which was compounded throughout the early 21st century by evidence of feckless church leaders engaging in cover-ups, struck particularly hard at a church that was beginning to understand that evangelism begins with witness, not, not argument. And it was and is difficult to imagine a more severe counter-witness to the truth of Christ than the manipulative sexual abuse of innocent young people by those claiming to speak in Christ's name. If this most bitter of ironies makes anything clear, it is that this fifth act of the drama of Catholicism and modernity in which we are living and for which we are all responsible must be a time of deep Catholic reform. The sexual abuse crisis also underscored that that reform had to confront the continuing problem of what I have now called for 16 years Catholic light namely the breakdown of doctrinal discipline in the church, which was manifestly a factor in the epidemiology of the sexual abuse crisis, and that reform must confront the challenge of moving beyond institutional maintenance models of leadership, which manifestly made the crisis worse. Viewed then through the prism of this two century long drama of Catholicism and modernity, the crisis through which we are now living comes into focus as a moment of necessary purification. To be the church of the new evangelization and the church that offers modernity a remedy for its ills, the church must purify itself and must live, and must be seen to live by what it proclaims. The countercultural truths of Catholic teaching on the ethics of human love, and the challenge the church's social doctrine poses to postmodern understandings of freedom as, as sheer willfulness, are difficult enough to proclaim. They can't be proclaimed with any credibility by a church that fails to discipline itself and whose leaders lay it open to charges of hypocrisy. That deep Catholic reform touches every facet of the church, but most especially the priesthood and the episcopate. No one who does not believe <clears throat> what the Catholic church believes to be true and who has not demonstrated that conviction by his life and his experience as a missionary disciple should be admitted to a seminary, much less ordained a priest. <clears throat> Excuse me. No priest who has not shown himself a successful evangelist, deepening the faith of the people entrusted to his care and bringing others into the communion of disciples in mission that is the church should be called to the Episcopate. As we come to the second decade, the end of the second decade of the 21st century, none of us can know 
how this latest and most bitter irony will play itself out in the drama of Catholicism and modernity. In the most extreme scenarios, legal action against the church instigated by individuals and the state could play a role similar to that played by Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament when he raised the temple, knocked it down, which in this case would mean the large-scale deconstruction of the institutional church built during the drama of Catholicism's encounter with modernity. But even in that worst case, which would primarily involve the church in certain parts of the Western world, the path forward for Catholicism would be the path defined by the Second Vatican Council as authoritatively interpreted by John Paul II and Benedict XVI, which is the path of missionary discipleship and public witness to the truths that make it possible to live freedom nobly. It's up to all of us to turn this latest irony in the multiple ironies of Catholicism and modernity into a moment of purification and a moment of renewal so that the great promise of these past 200 years can be realized for the proclamation of the gospel and so that we might be the missionary disciples who not only bring the postmodern world to Christ, but bring our own deeply confused society and culture to its senses so that it might live out its aspirations to freedom and solidarity and equality and justice in a heroic way. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, George, for that very enlightening speech. What I'd like to do now is allow anyone who has questions, uh, you can come forward to the microphone and give a few moments to to answer, George? A few moments for questions? Sure. Yeah. Um, hi, Mr. Weigel. Um, hi. My name is Spencer. Thank you for uh, taking my question. Uh, I was wondering um, how has the how have the reforms and changes and the uh, rupture from the organic development of the liturgy in the late 1960s affect where we are today and how does it affect the church's mission in the world today? The you know it's interesting if you go back to the uh, origins of, of the modern liturgical movement in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, the, the aim of, of that movement was to uh, reform the liturgy so that particularly Holy Mass 
was not a spectator sport in which people would watch something happen, but a participatory act in which, led by the priest celebrant, the entire congregation would offer Christ to the Father and receive him back in Holy Communion to do two things. One, to be empowered for mission, and two, to change the world. In the 1920s and 1930s, there was a deep connection between the liturgical movement and, and Catholic social doctrine. Now, when liturgical reform got hijacked after Vatican II by a certain gang whose after effects we occasionally live with, I'm sure not where Father Bryce is involved, um, all of this got, disin got, got taken apart. Um, how many Catholics today at Sunday Mass know that, that during Mass, they are, according to the teaching of Vatican II, to be joining themselves spiritually with the priest in making an offering of God's Son to the Father. I mean, how many of us really think that when we're at Mass on Sunday or, or during the day? This, by the way, is another argument for moving to ad orientem, where priests and people face the same way during the liturgy of the Eucharist. If we're all doing spectator sport together, there's, where's the sense of the common offering of the sacrificial victim? Um, I think in the living parts of the church, the liturgy wars are over. Uh, a recovery of the sense of the sacred, much better music, Catholic Church architecture has really improved in the last 15 or 20 years. No more pizza huts. <laughs> Jesus is back where he belongs. He's not in the third base coach's box. Okay, so all that's moving in the right direction. What hasn't happened, I think, although maybe this is uh, an exception here at Our Lady of Wisdom, uh, there hasn't been a proper liturgical catechesis since the council. That point I just made about you know, the, the spiritual participation in the offering of the sacrifice is, is impenetrably foggy to people who haven't been reminded for 50 years that the Mass is a sacrifice. This is not just a communal meal. It's, it's the replication of sacramentally of, of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So we, we badly need liturgical catechesis, which, which should be empowering. I mean, the whole idea, one of the fundamental ideas of the liturgical movement in its classic form, which deeply inspired the young Joseph Ratzinger, 
was that it would empower all of the people of the church to live out their baptismal dignity. Every Christian is baptized to be priest, prophet, and king. Worship in truth, speak the truth, serve in truth. Okay? That was the idea. We need to get that idea back in, into play. But I think that's happening. I think, I think it's happening. Yeah, good question. Mr. Weigel, thank you for coming. We really appreciate you being here. Um, Took some doing, but I made it. <laughs> you left one swamp and had to drive through another. Um, do you see the roots of the current sexual abuse scandal in the church tied to Humana Vitae? And if so, how do we recover that teaching? Um, right. There was a wholesale rejection um, by conferences, bishop conferences and priests as well, yeah. back in the 60s when it was introduced, and how do we recover that? Yeah. Um, some of you may be familiar with a, a book I wrote in 2002 during that crisis called The Courage to be Catholic, Crisis Reform, and the Future of the Church. I almost called the publisher two months ago and said, we're going to reissue that book except it's gonna have a new title. I told you so, you bloody fools. <laughs> in, in the crisis, in the courage to be Catholic, I said it's clear from the data that we had then, which wasn't as much as we have now, but it's even clearer now. It was clear then that there was an enormous spike in this repulsive behavior from the late 60s, early 70s, through the 1980s, and then as John Paul II's reform of the priesthood and of seminaries begins to kick in, the, the, the spike goes way down. If you look at you actually look at that Pennsylvania grand jury report rather than read what was summarized of it. There was a huge spike in the 70s and 80s. It, it goes way down. Uh, Pennsylvania grand jury report also made, made clear there were 23 of 680 cases since 2002, which means that the reforms that were put in place in 2002 actually worked. Um, but let's go back to, to the spike. There are as many reasons for abusive behavior as there are sexual predators. I mean, this is, this is a highly individual pathology. And yet, when you get a large number of people doing this in, in the same institutional environment, there must be something in that environment that explains that. What I proposed 16 years ago was that men who were in the seminary at the time or, or young priests who had convinced themselves that it was okay to live a life of intellectual duplicity, 
church says this is true. I don't believe that, but I can continue to function as, as a Catholic priest. It was not a, a long journey from intellectual duplicity to moral and behavioral duplicity. If you give yourself a permission slip not to think with the church, it's, it's a, not a complicated matter to move to, or, or let, let's say it makes it m much easier to move to a pattern of life in which, which you're not living with the church. Now, I got completely hammered for that argument by the usual suspects 16 years ago. No one has come up with a counter proposal in a decade and a half. And indeed, the first lay review board um, uh, report to the bishops of the United States based on the John Jay College of Criminal Law study, the first one, essentially adopted that position. So, I mean, I won the argument there, but not elsewhere. Um, I, I think th there is no question that that was a huge factor, that the breakdown of doctrinal discipline and moral discipline, meaning behavioral discipline, uh, were, were deeply connected. Uh, now, that is, I think, a problem that has been largely fixed over the past 20 years. Uh, seminaries in the United States are very different than they were 25 or 30 years ago. Um, I can think of maybe one or two places around the country that I still think need some serious attention, but in the main, I, I think seminary life in the United States has been, has been considerably uh, reformed. Um, I, the young clergy I know are, are people committed to the teaching of the church. Um, uh, and I think vocation work has been, has been significantly reformed. It hasn't been reformed to the point that I would like. Um, I meant exactly what I said at the end. Unless a man has already demonstrated a capacity to be a missionary disciple, he should not be admitted to a seminary. You can't learn this stuff in school. And the same thing with, with candidates for the Episcopate, they, they have to have shown it uh, as priests. Uh, but no, I have no doubt that, that there was a, a, a real connection there. And that is why all of this new futzing around with Humanae Vitae is, is completely counterintuitive to people who say they are reformers. And it's just completely counterintuitive. Now, we just had a very bad uh, report on abuse issues in Germany come out. What I want to see is, is disaggregated numbers. So, you know, can you, was the spike there in the 70s and 80s too? Because that was the center of the, 
of the dissent meltdown uh, was in the German-speaking world. Uh, and I, I'm fairly confident that if you pull those numbers apart and, and look at when stuff happened, you're going to find the same thing uh, there. Um, I'm going to be in Rome all next month at this forthcoming synod, working with uh, some of the Anglophone bishops. And that is a point we are going to raise uh, before the world church, uh, because it, we can't be quiet about this uh, anymore. Mr. Weigel, I was wondering if you could comment specifically on the agreement that uh, the Vatican made with the Chinese government with regards to priests and bishops. What, does that represent a continuation of pushing into the deep started under Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict, or is it institutional maintenance? Uh, and gen generally speaking, do you think that with the current uh, pope, we are entering a sixth uh, act? Or is it we're continuing still in the fifth? Well, somebody got the framework down. That's good. <laughs> well done. Um, some of you may have seen the, pub the piece I published on National Review Online yesterday on the Vatican-China agreement in which I basically torched the thing. I, I think it's a very bad idea. Uh, it's a violation of the church's own canon law. Canon 377, number five, says no concessions are to be made to governments, or to civil authorities, I think is the phrase, in, in the uh, nomination or uh, presentation of candidates for the episcopate. This is even worse than the deal that was proposed 10 years ago, because in China, as of the most recent Chinese Communist Party Congress, responsibility for religious affairs has been transferred from the state to the Communist Party. So you're now going to have Communist Party bureaucrats proposing these names that Catholics are supposed to consider, and, and so it goes to the Vatican. I think this is a very bad idea. I have written extensively against this for the last five years, which shows you how much influence I have. Um, and um, I think it, it's, it's, this is a point I made yesterday. This is fundamental, this is to get, thank you for raising it. This is the worst of institutional maintenance Catholicism at the expense of, of the evangelizing mission. Uh, I do not believe that the Chinese communist system is any more immortal than any other communist system. These things eventually come apart because of their own implausibility. China has lots of social problems, got huge demographic problems, increasingly aging population, no real social safety net, not enough young people to support old people, cranky middle-class people who want something to say about how they're governed, et cetera, et cetera. The idea that this thing goes on for hundreds of years in this way is, is sheer foolishness. Now, whether it's 20 years from now or 50 years from now or 100 years from now, China post-communism will be the greatest field of Christian mission since the Europeans came to this part of the world in the 16th century. Why? Because Mao destroyed traditional Chinese religion. 
So you don't have a situation like India, where there is a thick, dense, culturally transmitted religious system in place that, that's a real obstacle to the, to the proclamation of the gospel. There's none of that in China. So when, when this system goes, it's daylight to run to. Um, now, what Christian communities will have credibility in a post-communist China? It's not going to be the Christian communities that cooperated with or were seen to be an extension of the system that just collapsed. It'll be the martyr churches. So I think from an evangelical point of view, this is an extremely dumb move. It does not advance the proclamation of the gospel in China. And in fact, I mean, I've discussed this on several occasions with the redoubtable Cardinal Joseph Zen, former Bishop of Hong Kong, who's been a great critic of, of this proposed deal and who must be a very unhappy man right now. And he said to me, look, there's a reason why Protestantism is growing in China and we're stalled. The reason is they're heroes. I mean, these little house churches and these uh, you know, uh, individual missionaries who have internalized a sense of, of missionary responsibility are real heroes and that attracts people. And we're stalled because we are increasingly identified with the regime. So it's a very bad deal and it's gonna to have to be revisited very soon in the next pontificate. Um, I think of the present pontificate as kind of a pause. I mean, history doesn't work in a straight line. Uh, there have been pauses in this process I've described before. I mean, Leo XIII was followed by Pius X, who we all remember as a, as a deeply pious guy who let little kids go to Holy Communion. Uh, but he ran a real reign of terror intellectually in the church. And the, the Leonine Revolution kind of stalled for, for 10 years there. I think there was something of a stall in the last half of the pontificate of Pius XII. First half of his pontificate was very much in the Leonine Revolution mode. Second half kind of stalled out. Then we had this big stall after Vatican II where there was 20 years of goofiness. So, um, you know, this may be a, a pause, but uh, the living parts of the world church whether you're talking about here, or Africa, or the remnants of living Catholicism in Europe, Canada, uh, etc., are the parts that have internalized this dual mission. Evangelical vigor, public engagement. And that's the future. Yes, sir. Thank you. I'm 65 years old, and the most significant development—the most significant development I've seen in the Catholic Church, locally and uh, 
institutionally is the development of the diaconate. What is the significance and what role will the diaconate play in this fifth chapter? Yeah, that's a good question. What, 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 where does the diaconate fit into all of this? Um, uh, I think it might well fit in in terms of the liberation of bishops to be teachers. Um, most bishops spend 80% of their time going to meetings. That is not what bishops are for. Bishops are teachers, catechists, preachers, sanctifiers. I tell friends of mine who are called to the Episcopate, if you are spending more than 40% of your time going to meetings, you are not living the vocation to which you were ordained. But somebody's got to run the show. Somebody's got to you know, run the machinery, and that is one uh, considerable function for, for the permanent diaconate. It's what deacons were in the early church. I think in third world context, deacons are very important catechists and, and sacramental personalities, particularly in, in situations where there uh, are not enough priests to have a regular celebration of the Eucharist. But in our context, I think the, the, uh, there are two functions. One is, frankly, management. I mean, deacons should be running parishes and dioceses and catechetics. I mean, some of the best parishes I know, married deacons do the marriage preparation work, the baptismal preparation work, and so forth, so the pastor is freed up to do other things. So I, I, you know, we're still trying to figure out what this thing is and, and what it's for. But I think in, from a practical point of view, uh, those are the things that, that would really make the diaconate, the permanent diaconate, make sense in, in our context. Um, so there's a thought on that. Okay, one more. Mr. Weigel. As how do we as Catholics support a relationship of church and state in the modern world today? How do we support? Yes, sir. Yeah, well, I, what we, the first thing we need to do is keep the state in its place. Um, how, how do we support church-state relations in the, in the modern world? Um, the... Uh, all modern states, whether they're democratic, uh, authoritarian, uh, something in between, have a tendency to fill up all the available social space. This is part of function of bureaucratization of everything. But um, the first thing we need to do is keep the state limited. Uh, most important, the beginning of the theory of the limited democratic state is not John Locke. It's not Rousseau. It's not Voltaire. It's not Thomas Hobbes. It's Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Because there are things of 
gods that are not Caesar's, then Caesar is limited. There are places where the reach of Caesar's power does not go or should not go. Uh, that's, that's a fundamental Christian contribution to what we think of as, as the democratic project today. But democracies are as vulnerable as other forms of the modern state to, to this vast expansion of, of state power. Um, and so the first thing we need to do is to uh, remind the state that its reach is limited. Uh, the second thing I think we need to do is um, today particularly is to uh, remind, let's just talk about our own country, that if freedom is simply willfulness, if we've gone from we hold these truths to be self-evident and therefore we claim a right to independence to the great political philosopher Frank Sinatra, I did it my way as the sum total of the meaning of the American democratic experiment, then we're in big trouble. So I think the Catholic Church and its social doctrine actually has a way conceptually of linking freedom to truth and ordering freedom to goodness that, that makes a lot of sense and that is badly needed in, in an America today when I did it my way, you know, has, has become a kind of national anthem. I mean, all that craziness that was going on in the Senate Judiciary Committee two weeks ago was an expression of, I did it my way, you know? But that, that's not how this started, and it's not how it can function. Um, so uh, we're, uh, if you go to, go to Google, almighty, <laughs> punch in George Weigel, Democracy and Its Discontents, you will come up to an article uh, of that name in the, in the journal National Affairs. It was a lecture I gave in Washington about um, six months ago, and there might be some things you'd find uh, interesting in there. Okay? Thank you all for coming. Great to be back here. Thank you, Dr. Weigel, for joining us and giving us this very insightful, very informative presentation and, and answering the questions very thoroughly. Very well done. So uh, thank you once more.